This is a Broad Pods production. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Jo Stanley and with me today as my co-host is the glorious Bianca Chatfield and B, you just look magnificent. Oh, thank you. Is it the colour? Is it summer? I think it's something about the maternal glow. <laughs> the fake tan that I put on. <laughs> thank you very much. Although I'm not sleeping much, so I don't, I don't know what pregnancy insomnia. Did you ever have that? Oh yeah, they say that uh, you're supposed. To, it's about. It's supposed to get you ready for all the times when you have sleepless nights once the baby arrives okay. and I used to think well that sucks thanks so much for that <laughs> thanks so much for that early present yeah uh, but I don't want to start on a, neg- on a negative note because I am feeling really good and I'm 29 weeks now and yeah it's I don't know what I'm in for from here on in but uh, yeah. I expect that this belly is going to grow a lot bigger <laughs> I love it I will say you have got a bit of a glow but I never ever felt like I had a glow so if you don't feel that way you're, you're you are entitled to <laughs> to feel shit and say so. Okay, well, I've got acupuncture this afternoon and usually I have the best sleep ever after that, so yes. that is what I'm hanging for. Awesome. <laughs> well, we have a gorgeous show ahead for you. We are going to be joined by the amazing Clementine Ford. She has a beautiful new book out, which is called... I love it, I love it, I love it so much. How We Love. It absolutely broke me apart. I can't wait to speak with the uh, feminist icon that she is, Clementine Ford. Also, we're going to be talking about... This is amazing... The new, well, it's going to be introduced next year, I believe, cervical screening at home. Oh, and to be able to do it yourself at home, like that is unbelievable. A game changer, no doubt, for so many people. Absolutely. So we're going to be joined by Dr. Kathleen McNamee, who is the Medical Director of Family Planning Victoria, to talk about that. And one of our favourite commentators and regular contributors on Broad Radio, Kerry Sackville, is going to be joining us to talk about the fact that her eldest is moving out of home. Oh, my God. Can you even imagine? You want yours to move out, I'm sure, at some point. I can't even get my head around like that far. It is crazy to think. Oh, the different stages of motherhood. So if you are joining us live today, it would be awesome if you would like to comment on Facebook or YouTube. We love it when you share your thoughts as we go along in the show. It would be lovely to hear from you. You can, of course, catch up on this episode or any other episodes on our podcast, Broad Radio On The Go. 
And we've only got four more days, including today, of our crowdfund campaign on Indiegogo. Uh, we are currently at $54,000. I know, my God. <laughs> and our target was fifty. So we just have been overwhelmed by the support. It's been incredible. But we've got one last push till Friday because, of course, it's a bit of a cliche, but every cent does count it helps us not just with the building of the app that we hoped for which we're going to be able to do now but of course all the other things like studio and paying our amazing everybody who's in our team and all the wonderful things that come with it yeah and the one thing I love that when I was looking into it all is that you can do things with the money as well that you donate to the crowdfunding you know I was thinking mm, do I want to be the back end of the app and test it out for you guys yeah. while you're doing it like, yeah the things like that that I think is is really cool about it. it's not just donating money there's also things that you can get for your money as well mm, while you're on there so yes. check it out four more days to go H- how have you been feeling I know overwhelmed is probably a word that comes to mind straight away oh, but man emotional it- <laughs> roller coaster all of those cliches um, mostly just deeply grateful yeah. and it's it's kind of really important that you have validation when you're starting something like this because I am going constantly to meet with investors and people who are going to be able to help us get to be a 24-7 radio network. That doesn't just happen, right? So all of this, having 250-odd contributors to the crowdfund is another thing that you can go to the big guys and say, look, it is a thing. People want it. Women want it. We've proven this. Here is the proof. Yeah, it's really critical. So, yeah. Deeply grateful would be the way I'd describe it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, four days to go. So if you can contribute, please do jump on and the link will be somewhere, Rose. Oh, yeah, Rose Rose got the link going on. Go to indiegogo.com and just uh, Google broad, search broad radio. Hey, so something I needed to bring up with your thoughts, um, Bianca, was uh, the story that has evolved over the last couple of days Mm -hmm. from Channel 7's Matt Doran, who... um, the story goes that he was flown over to the UK to interview Adele. Amazing. What an opportunity. <laughs> I mean, I would I would, I would be beside myself. Um, and then the story is that he did the interview and after the interview she said, have you even listened to my album? Kudos for being truthful. He said no, he hadn't. And she said, well, Ooh. thanks very much, but um, you don't get to play this interview now. And it's a million-dollar interview that Channel 7 paid for for that exclusive. Mm, pulled the interview. No, thank you. Again, I love that kudos to her. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Saying, I'm worth so much more than this kind of lack of respect. A- amazing kind of story because a lot of people, including myself, have been a bit um, outraged by that. Yes, and I really loved your tweets about it yesterday and the thread around the fact that you have to respect somebody like Adele. I don't know whether Matt Doran's used to doing a million different interviews and it's just like, oh, here's another one, here's another one. But no matter who it is, you have to respect the amount of time and effort they've put into the album to at least take the time to listen to Mm. it and to be able to go and get that opportunity over so many other journalists and presenters. And like, I mean, I must say it would be totally out of my league, but you're, you're used to interviewing these kind of, I don't even want to call her a pop star because she's better than that. She's she's an icon. (laughs) She's an absolute icon. And to not even, you know, I, I love that you put on the end of it, like there'd be that many other people that would put their hand up to do it 
and probably spend weeks and weeks and weeks listening to the album over and over again, listening to every interview that she did about the album and why she put it together the way she did and... Well, that was the thing that really disappointed me the most. Like, I did spend the whole weekend listening to the album. And I guess the first point I would make to the people that decide who are going to do these interviews, maybe give it to someone who is the right market. Mm. Like Matt Doran, he's probably not inclined, even though he should, he's not inclined to spend a weekend listening to Adele. (laughs) Whereas someone like myself and the hundreds and thousands of women who've worked in the media for the last 30 years will happily spend a weekend listening to it because it's amazing. But even if you were to do that research, and he says that he didn't see the email and, you know, maybe that's, it's an honest mistake. Okay. Let's, sure. I still make the point though, that she, this album, if you haven't listened to it, she's actually put in the recording like real conversations, recordings of herself and her son mm-hmm. talking about their, her breakup from her partner. So she's basically handed you an opportunity to get into the most vulnerable personal parts of her life, which is what you always aim for when you're interviewing yes. people like this. And usually you get told you can't ask any personal yes. questions. In, in, in this instance, she's given you a blueprint and it just breaks my heart that he mm. missed that opportunity. But do you know what the thing is? And I got a little bit of pushback on my tweets, right? Fair <laughs> enough. That's what Twitter is about. Yes. And some people suggesting, you know, kick a guy while he's down and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> there are a lot of people who made the points I was making because they are musojournos mm-hmm. and they're like, send someone who's qualified. Yeah. That's enraging for them. But for me, I think that a lot of women particularly reacted because we are so sick of seeing men get the jobs that women should do and they're not qualified. Yeah. Put the woman in. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's so tedious. Oh, dear. We could go on and on about this, <laughs> couldn't we? But, you know, I want to just to give everybody who is listening or watching, you know, when you interviewed, you got the opportunity to interview Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, yes. Now, how was that last year, year before? Uh, I've done it a couple of times. Okay. So I think it was a, la- a couple of years ago I spent two days with her. That's right. Yes. So it's such an unbelievable opportunity Mm. and moment for you, no doubt. Yes. How much time did you put into that? Oh, hours and hours and hours. (laughs) And you rehearse and you go through, you know, all of the part. You read everything she's ever written. You read every interview there's ever been. You watch every possible thing. And, you know, you You go back over sort of Sex in the City. That's not such a chore. But, yeah, absolutely. You do that because it's an honour that this person has spent any time with you. And they are contributing to... You think about what they've contributed to mm. culturally. Mm. You know, it's you, they have earned your respect. I will say the first time I interviewed Sarah Jessica Parker, we got eight minutes with her in uh, like it was a junket kind of hotel room scenario and I was so excited that um, I – believed we were going to be best friends and we connected so beautifully, right? And she mentioned during this eight-minute interview that she'd been going to a cafe in Western Kilda that I was a fan of. So I went home and I said, well, Daz, to my husband, well, clearly we're going to be best friends, right, because I'm going to go to that cafe and she's going to be there and she's going to say, oh, hi, and then we'll start like messing each other just, you know, randomly and then I'll go to New York and then we'll kind of bump into each other and you'll be great friends with Matthew Broderick and the next thing we'll be like great mates, right? And then eventually after like a week and a half of this my husband says to me you know she's supposed to make you feel that way she's an actress and oh Jazz. you pulled up a oh. photo so when he said this to me she's an actress she's supposed to make you feel that way and when I realized Jazz. we were never going to be best friends <laughs> I actually cried. 
I actually cried. How did you even choose what to wear? I know we've really gone off a topic, but how did you even choose what to wear in those moments of getting to meet an icon like Sarah Jessica Parker? It was very hard. (laughs) I know. Anyway, the bad news news is we're not best friends, Bianca. (laughs) Maybe try and slide into her DMs a few more times. (laughs) Broke my heart. That's okay. Look, there are other people that I have huge, huge respect for and I'm very excited to welcome to the show. How's that for a segue? (laughs) Um, I'm very thrilled to welcome this woman to the show because you would know Clementine Ford for her best-selling books, um, Fight Like a Girl and um, Boys Will Be Boys, both brilliant books. She is a bit of a feminist icon because she, I think, is fearless in speaking about gender equality and fighting for all the things that we all really aim for in gender equality. She has a new book out, How We Love. It is glorious. I love, love, loved it. And she joins us now. Hi, Clementine. Hi. How are you both? I was... Just enraptured listening to you talk about the Adele thing because it, it has also frustrated and infuriated me. Well, Audacity. Are they, <laughs> I know. I mean, come on, mate. You're on a plane for 23 hours. Listen to the album for, I don't know, 30 minutes. Put in some time. Also, as, as well, you know, as someone who's gone through a separation with the father of my child, and we get along very well now, which is wonderful, but there's so much rich there for a conversation and I just feel so annoyed as well that Seven sent in a man to have that conversation that's a conversation that would have been so primed for a woman to have yeah exactly well do you know I, I actually listening to the album over the weekend Clementine it reminded me a bit about your book in a way because similarly there's um you know it's the story of love and a beautiful way of of sharing an experience you had. So, you know, I'm glad that you heard us talk about that and I'm glad to get that perspective <laughs> from you on... on um, and have you heard Adele's album? I haven't heard Adele's album yet, but I wasn't interviewing Adele. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that is... Swift. <laughs> <laughs> the new Tay-Tay. Oh. I haven't checked that one out. What's it like? Oh, it's it's magical. I'm a huge Swifty. I became a Swifty at 40 years old, and it's one of the most joyful things that's happened to me. <laughs> but love, love. I mean, that's one of the facets of love, isn't it? That as you get older, and this is one of the things that I tried to touch on in the book as well, is that as you get older and you, you let go of the insecurities of youth and childhood that kind of plagued us when we were growing up, and, and so much of that is to do with trying to figure out who we are and, and establishing an identity based on... I guess our experiences and we're, we're shaped by all of them. And one of the things that became so apparent to me writing about all these different kinds of love in the book, you know, whether or not that's love for your friends or, or love for your parent, um, complicated relationship with a mother. Um, and then, and then the love that you experience when you become a parent yourself, if you become a parent yourself, is that you realize, you realize how little you know of any of it, but how joyful it is to expand your idea of what love is and what place it and what meaning it can have in your life you know when we're young we're sort of and and I suspect this is um I'll feel these things when I do listen to Adele's album and I hear those excerpts of her talking to her son that we have the, we established this idea we're very enculturated to think that romantic love is the only kind of love that's worth pursuing it's the most important love that we can have in our life and then you realise that that's a lie and that by holding fast to that, we close ourselves off to so much richness of life and also we set ourselves up for disappointment if and when those things don't work out, which so often they don't. 
And I also, one thing that really captivated me was just a lot of the time you don't even understand it's love that you're feeling, whether it be, you know, with your sisters, your mum, and then relationships and, you know, all the different kinds that we go through. That's what really made me think when I was reading it, when you were going through, especially your teenage years, around just all these moments in time that you put down to love. You know, for you and the shift in writing about that, it would have been such an adventure just to explore all those different moments that you've been through. It was quite, um, I thought before I started writing it, I thought it would be a lot easier than it was. I thought this is it was kind of like a balm for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because it's a topic that fascinates me. But also I felt very burnt out after writing Boys Will Be Boys in particular because there was so much, there was so much in that that was just so distressing to kind of wade through. And I would come home from, you know, long days of writing at the library to my son who was then two. And I'd have to switch from the gear of writing about terrible violence against women and, and the way that patriarchy oppresses boys too. And then switch into this role of, you know, loving, joyful mum. And I found it very intense emotionally. So I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to write a book about love. It's just going to be my stories. There's going to be no research involved. But then, of course, you spend months and months ploughing through things that you might not have thought about deeply for many years, but that actually bring up a lot of really again, intense things for you, you know, spending all that time writing about my mother and her death. My mum's been dead now for most of my adult life. And I, I've only kind of been realising that while talking about the book. I've only been realising how much that has affected me because you kind of compartmentalise these things. You know, you're right, my mum died at 25. I grieved, I dealt with it, and then I moved on and it was fine. That's what you think. But then you, you kind of are confronted with all of these little pockets of feelings that you've been storing inside and just not paying that much attention to and that really is what the experience and journey of love is as well is that it's not I don't want to sound like a cliche but it's not all light and fun and joy you know a lot of love has been for all of us has been really really hard mm. and some of it has been very fleeting and it and it's meant to be fleeting and we sort of ascribe these kind of different values to it suggesting that it becomes more important as we get older but one of the things that I wanted to, to kind of encap to capture was that why is the love that you experience in an unrequited crush, say when you're 15 years old, any less important to you and who you are and, and, and your identity than a four-year-long relationship that you might have in your 20s that's very adult and mature? Mm, I love that. I love too, I think what you're alluding to is the courage. Like there's courage in loving there's courage in telling the story of your love as well. And I, again, would equate your book to the way Adele has told the story of her love and relationship breakup. There's great courage in being able to actually speak about love in a way that's not what we see in Hollywood yes. movies. Um, <laughs> did you feel courageous doing it? I don't think I felt courageous necessarily, although I do write that to love and to continue to love even though we've been hurt by love, is an act of courage. And I think that that's one of the things that I took away from writing the book. Particularly, it wasn't intended to be written during a pandemic. I, I you know, pitched the book well before COVID, but it ended up being write, written in the middle of um, the, the lockdown last year and, and a little bit this year too. And so I feel like that kind of, um, it really intensified that, this idea that to love 
and to continue to hope in the face of um, a lack of knowledge about what might happen is very courageous. I feel like, you know, one of the things as well that we do so badly in this culture is we suggest that when love ends that it somehow is a failure. Mm. And to me that has never been true, but it especially was clear to me writing this that that's not true. Love love doesn't fail to mm. act and to, to like courageously leap into love is not a failure, no matter how the love ends up. Sometimes things just end. You know, the relationship with, to go back to Adele again, my apologies to Adele <laughs> for incorporating so much. The relationship that Adele had with the, son, with the father of her son wasn't a failure, even though Hollywood in particular and tabloid magazines love to kind of say, well, another failed relationship. They got a beautiful child out of it. She learned a lot of stuff. She wrote a whole album. I mean, that none of these things are failures. I, I think that it's really sad when we conceive of romantic love in particular to, to have these kind of very rigid rules on what deems it a success or not. You know, even the relationships that we have that don't produce children, they're not failures. They're, they're moments in our life that have brought us great meaning and great pleasure and for a time worked really well and taught us what love was and taught us the different capacities that we have to love. And then as, as such things often do, they ended and that's fine. We need to be okay with those things. We need to be okay with the idea of love soaring and then landing and leaving us with a lot more than we began with, you know, leaving us with a lot more lessons. Yeah, and talking about the ups and downs, Clementine, I, I'm a big audiobook listener. I love that. I love being able to go for a walk and, you know, have my AirPods in and just listen and especially listen to the author telling you their story. And so many of your words are so incredibly raw. How hard is it to, to read that, to go into a studio and to relive it all when you've already obviously gone through the whole writing process? Is it different or is it actually quite therapeutic to go through it all and read it out? I really love being the one to read my audiobooks, and I'm very grateful that um, I'm allowed to <laughs> um, because I also feel, of course, I mean, you know, you're both writers and I feel like you you have such ownership over your words that it feels more vulnerable to hand them to someone else to articulate because, of course, they're just performing them whereas you've lived them. Of course, them. yeah. Um, I found it having read both of my previous books, it it was a lot easier just like um, technically because I understood better how to do it, how to speak slowly. You know, when we go to read things out loud, we often speed our words because we think it sounds too slow, mm. but actually obviously listening to things, you need them to be slowed down. So that's a really, really hard technical thing to get about slowing your speech down. But I also loved being able to read it out loud after I, you know, sufficient time of writing and editing the book had passed, so I no longer felt that crushing insecurity about it. I'd mm. finally gotten the book to a point where I was, I was really happy with it, and that's a, a huge gift as well. And then I thought that it was so special being able to read such emotional parts and not, not you know, shield the emotion in my voice. There's parts in the book where I'm reading it where you'll hear me crying, and that's all genuine emotion. And I feel like that adds to the experience of, of what the book is about. Hopefully that's how people listen to it anyway. Oh, it's it's really powerful because the words that you're writing are incredibly real and raw. Mm. And I tell you that the, the sections about you as a teenager. I know. <laughs> oh, my God, my heart just 
it broke because I remember feeling exactly that awkward sense that you desperately want to belong. You want to have a boyfriend because all everybody else seems to have a boyfriend, but I'm terrified to have a boyfriend because I don't even know what happens when you have a boyfriend. And, you know, trying to understand how you connect with the rest of the social circle at school or, you know, outside of school. That really felt real for me. Have you had, though, people say to you, Clementine, oh, you were the cool kid. Oh, I do remember you in school. And, you know, because our perception of who we were at school is very different to the way other people see us. I haven't had anyone say you were the cool kid. Um, But I, you know, that's the other thing you, 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 you touch on something really true there is that what I have heard from girls I went to school with was, oh, I felt all those same things. All the girls who I thought were cool and had it all together and knew what was going on, they felt those same insecurities. Of course they did. You know, it's a a very rare teenage girl who comes home at the end of the day and feels like she's got it all figured out. Um, And and to an extent as well, writing about your teenage years, you realise how lucky you are to have not peaked in high school. No one wants to be <laughs> <Yeah>. their best. <laughs> it's point. That's so um, true. But I think I've had people say that they were surprised that I felt that way because maybe I seemed a, a bit more self-assured than I was. Um, I don't know. It's and you, you, I mean, you're right as well. Like I kind of yearned for a boyfriend in the way that, I saw it playing out on movies and in TV shows and stuff because I felt like that was kind of a an essential experience of teenagehood. But we don't really see a lot of stories either of kids not knowing what to do or and we don't really have a cultural narrative either of um, girls or boys or, or, you know, just humans desiring the emotional side of that and what that means, but being terrified of physicality. You know, I was terrified as a teenager of what it would mean to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend because I thought, God, I'm going to have to kiss them. And that, mm. like, even thinking about that made my palms sweat with anxiety. I felt so sickened at the thought of any kind of physical contact with anyone else. And that made me feel really weird, I guess. And I think that that's probably also very common for teenagers. But we don't really have stories about that. And so they just go through thinking that there's something wrong with them. Um, I mean, we all think that there's something wrong with us when, when we're kids, but again, like with the benefit of hindsight, I feel so much love. You know, one of the things I write about in the book is this idea of yourself being made up by multiple selves. So I'm a 40 year old woman. Yes. But like inside me, there's every single version of me who's ever existed. And there's also every single version of me who will ever exist. And you can make friends with those different parts of yourselves and you can conceive of them as being part of one giant kind of organism, I guess, or or like a team, but it allows you to look back at particularly your adolescent self who you may have over the years felt so much shame and derision for and embarrassment about, and you kind of speak so negatively about who you were and you you laugh at yourself in front of other people. Look at this girl. She was such a dork. What a loser. She's so gross. She's so ugly. And then you realize, wow, how is it that I've spent my entire life speaking to that little girl who, who really like got me through those years? I didn't get me through those years. She got me through those years and I've been so mean to her. I would never go up to a girl in the street and say, you're a loser. What a loser. You're so ugly. You're pointless. But you speak about yourself in those terms and you don't even think about it. So when you think, when you can kind of like consider yourself as as being made up of those multiple people, 
it becomes a lot easier to start loving yourself because you begin to love them. Oh. I tell you, Clementine, your book is effectively about learning to love yourself mm. in many different ways and it's so beautiful. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for uh, sharing it with the world because I think it's really powerful. And one of the things I love too to wrap up is that it tells everyone that there are lots of different ways of loving and and sometimes they're sexual, sometimes they're romantic, sometimes they're not. You can, you know, that there's you can love however you wish to love, that there's freedom in that which I think was really, really powerful. Thank you. And thank you both so much for speaking about it so generously. It's so nice to talk to women especially who are interested in these topics. So I really appreciate it. And I, I was listening as well to your um, the funding and I really hope that you get it because we absolutely need a station, a radio station doing exactly what you guys are doing. So I am rooting for you and I'm going to donate. Thanks so much, Clementine. That's really lovely of you. Please go and get the book, How We Love. And, of course, all of Clementine's other books are amazing. So if you haven't checked out her words, please do so because they're really beautiful and really powerful. Um, Clementine, you have a great day. You too. Thank you so much. (laughs) If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, a new federal government initiative means that cervical screening is going to be available at home in a move that really it's hoped will save lives, but also we believe is just going to change the game, as you said, be for so many people. And to tell us how it's going to work, we are really pleased to welcome to the show Dr. Kathleen McNamee, who is Medical Director of Family Planning Victoria. Good morning, Dr. Kathleen. Hi, how are you? It's lovely to have you on the show. So firstly, can you tell us how is the new cervical screening going to work? Yes. Well, um, from July next year, um, basically people will be given a, um, a self-taken swab. It's just like a long cotton bud that's put into the vagina. There'll be a marker or something in it to tell you how far to put it in. Like it, you, you can't really hurt yourself with it. Taken out, put in a container and sent off for cervical screening. 
That is an incredibly quick <laughs> it's process. It's so simple. Isn't it? So simple <laughs> to be able to do it at home. What's the turnaround in for people to be able to get their results? Do they post it off then, and then uh, it's off to the lab, and then the results come your way? I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I, I I think they would drop it back into the lab, and um, like most people will, will probably end up doing it at the doctor's surgery or the nurse's office. Um, that they'll just give them the swab, and perhaps they'll do it in the toilet. But they have got the option of taking it home and doing it like it would need to be ordered by a medical practitioner, either a doctor or a nurse practitioner. So what kinds of people do you see benefiting from this cervical screening, the DIY I'm calling it, cervical screening? (laughs) I don't think there'd be many people who would actually opt for the more traditional method um, if they had the choice. So I think most of us. Um, But in particular, um, we're sort of really hoping that the groups that are that underscreened, um, like women from um, cold communities, um, transgender uh, males, and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a higher rate of cervical cancer than than other people in Australia, um, and you know perhaps some of that's due to remote. Um, you know, difficulty accessing services. So it'll be absolutely fantastic for for them. And can you give us a bit of an indication around how often we should be getting this test? Just as an everyday female that's walking around, how often should we be putting it in our calendars that we need to get this done? It's only once every five years now. It used to be oh, two get years. Out. Um, <laughs> yeah, unless there's an abnormality detected. And then either you'll have a more frequent screen, like a yearly screen for a while if things go back to normal, or you might be referred for what's called a colposcopy where, where they it's like the old traditional pap smear, but they, they look with this sort of a operating microscope and they can see where any abnormalities are. You know what, I'm, I, I don't wish to make light of this, but it makes me laugh a little bit because every time a man complains about getting a COVID test, I think to myself, <laughs> oh, for God's sake, try getting a pap smear. And now what I'm imagining is that the process is not similar, that it's a similar kind of up the nose in the vagina, not the same time. <laughs> Not the same. <laughs> but it's sort of, you know, it's the same kind of process. It, it is. It's very similar. And, and I'd say it's actually even um, less uncomfortable than having a COVID test. But you still have mammograms, so we can complain about that. Yes. Oh, my God, they're the worst. <laughs> they really are. You know what I'm loving too about this? Um, and I, I know that we have the HPV vaccine in Australia and yes. there's talk of cervical cancer being eradicated entirely. That's which, right, yes. I mean, is this another step towards that happening, do you think, Kathleen? Yes, it is, because the, the people who, you know, the, the, these, um, tests, these tests check for changes that happen well before cervical cancer starts. So um, the people who get cerv- cerv- cervical cancer are the ones who are, who are largely underscreened or not screened at all. It's, it's quite uncommon in people who actually go through the full screening process. So, yeah, it's another step. And finally, I just want to um, find out around the costs of it because I know a lot of people, it is, you know, a fear that we have around how much things are going to cost. The more we delve into it, how much more money am I going to have to be putting up front for some of the tests, which, I mean, is, is not always great, is mm. it? That's our thought process. Yeah. But, um, yeah, what are the costs for getting this test done? Free. Um, oh, so it's really good. Don't I mean, we love that. There might be, yeah, there might be costs involved with seeing the doctor or nurse, but the test itself is free. And Kathleen, we're talking next year sometime? 
July next year it's going to start. It's really, I have to say, very, it's a different feeling for me to see that the government's getting behind female health like this. It's one of the conversations we've had really from the beginning of Broad Radio is how often uh, women's health is underfunded. So this is a really exciting thing. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, yeah. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr Kathleen from Family Planning Victoria. It's been awesome to have you on Broad Radio. Thank you. Lovely to be asked. Thank you. Bye. We'll have more Broad Radio after this. All righty. Well, uh, my daughter is 12, right? Mm -hmm. She's about to finish primary school, which is, oh, my God, so many tears and emotions. (laughs) You yourself are about to have your first baby. (laughs) So many tears and emotions. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) I don't know what I'm in for. but And our next guest, who is one of our favourites on uh, Broad Radio, we love having her, Kerry Sackville. So many tears and emotions for you because of what's happening in your life with your baby. My big bebe has just finished his university degree. So I now have a university graduate son, which makes me approximately 108 years old, I think. And he's, he's moving out. He's found a couple of flatmates and they're looking for apartments and he's going to be out of here in the next few weeks. And it's big, it's huge. You know, and, and just yesterday, I was pregnant with my first child. and But at the same time, it also feels like it was about 75 years ago that I was pregnant with my first child. Actually, I want to I ask you both, would either of you go back to that newborn stage knowing where you are now with your kids? You know, that's so funny you ask that because I actually bumped into a man fairly recently who I went on a couple of dates with who's older than me, so he would probably be late 50s, and he was pushing a pram. Um, and he'd just had a new baby with his new girlfriend. And... My my proper response would have like should have been oh this is marvelous news like congratulations I'm so happy for you and I was filled with horror (laughs) (laughs) oh my god like that's my worst nightmare I would be in an asylum yeah I think that's the answer to your question it's pretty funny actually I was with some girlfriends recently and one of them uh, got married earlier this year she's you know I don't know early forties and she announced to the group oh we have a baby coming and we all went. Oh, we're so happy for you. (laughs) And then she revealed it was a puppy that she was talking about. And we all went, oh, my God, thank God. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Babies are the most wonderful thing in the world. I love newborns. But when you've got to the other end, the idea of starting all over again is just... Mm too difficult it's exhausting (laughs) yeah I just and it's still going I mean you know my youngest is about to turn 14 and she's now in year eight with all the trials and tribulations of year eight I mean Joe you just wait till till, when they finish primary school and get to high school years eight and nine are disgusting I know I'm so (laughs) terrified for her and because I remember there was so much heartache in high school there was never a time when you were sure of yourself mm. I remember constantly yeah. like we were talking about with Clementine we were co- I was constantly fearful am I not going to fit in am I going to say yes. the wrong thing why don't I have the right clothes like you know it, it's just such a hard road for kids in high school it's so hard and I think it's especially hard for girls you know boys go through their own difficulties but I think there is something about the developmental stage at about 14 15 where they express themselves by being incredibly clicky and by forming these little groups. And it's the good thing is it's very fluid. You know, one day you can be someone's 
worst enemy and the next day you're friends again. Mm. But the flip side is that you can be someone's best friend and then two weeks later you're not speaking to each other and the groups form and reform and and someone is always on the outer, somebody is always feeling like they don't have friends and it's incredibly hard to be in that space and it's incredibly hard to be the parent of a kid in that space. Yeah. And what I say to all parents of teenage girls and what I said to myself when you know my now 20-year-old was a teenage girl, you know, it passes. It's a couple of really difficult years and it passes. But as we know, there's something in us, and as, as Clem was saying as well, there's something in us that will always be that teenage girl. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. There, there is still that 14-year-old girl inside me, and I know when I look at my daughter, this stage in her life is going to be really formative and she will carry that with her forever. So you really want it to be as positive as you can. But, you know, I think the greatest lesson I've learned as a parent, being now the parent of a 22-year-old who's about to move out of home, is that you can't protect your kids from pain. And I think as parents, we have to relax into that and understand that we can guide them. We can try and track them and stay with them as they move forward, but we cannot protect them from the pain that they're going to experience as they go through life. All we can do is be a soft place for them to fall. And if your kids are loved and if they know that you're there for them, Mm. then that's the best grounding that we you know, can give them. Yeah. Oh, that is fascinating because I remember when I told my mum I was moving out of home and, you know, my dad understood it because it was, you know, for sport to be closer to the city and all of that. But my mum was really like, she was really offended by it. I was 19 and she didn't want me to go. And, but I was super independent. And I remember her saying, if you, if you like, you know, you've got all these bills once you're paying rent and you've got all your water bills, everything that you're going to have to be paying. But then she was almost kind of challenging me like if you move out don't come back and ask for money because you've got to be able to do it and but I was like right like the competitive spirit in me was like all right I'm going to be Miss Independent and never need money I mean they were always there to support me but that was her way of kind of trying to keep me there a little bit longer what was your experience when did you first find out this might be on the cards you know I'm lucky in that I had some preparation because my son was in New York for five months just before COVID um, he, he did a, um, a stint at New York University. And so that was my first experience of him moving out. And I can tell you, it was wrenching. It mm. was so hard. I was used to having him here. And then suddenly he was on the other side of the world. And there was a really bad moment once where he rang me and it was morning his time, I think night my time, and he said he was unwell. And you know, I said, you've got to look after yourself and take Panadol and, and if you're not better, go to the doctor. And I went to bed, woke up the next morning, called him. I couldn't get on to him. Mm. And I was absolutely convinced that my son was like unconscious in his dorm room. I started Googling flights to New York. I started Googling campus security, you know, completely catastrophizing. And it turns out he was at the climate march. Uh (laughs) So he just had not notified me that he was actually feeling a bit better. And, And in a way, what that taught me was that you actually have to let go a bit and cut off from those kind of thoughts and feelings and understand that your kid has to go out and explore the world and be independent. And so contemplating now him leaving, my struggle and my journey, so to speak, is to detach from that anxiety and to try to be happy for him that he is making his way into the world. And I know plenty of kids who are sort of, you know, 28, 30, older, who are still living at home. And I guess I'm I'm happy that my son is at a point where he can, you know, move out and and um, become independent. 
Yeah. At least that's what I'm telling myself. Well, <laughs> there's well, going to be tears. But it, and it's there's true. Well, of course there's going to be tears, but it's also testament to the fact that you've prepared him for this. Like that's what we all want to do as parents, that we prepare our kids to go out in the world and live their life. Um, It just, as with pretty much everything that comes with being a parent, it comes with grief as well. And I think to be fair, he's the eldest of three and it's going to be much harder with my 20-year-old daughter. And as I've said to my nearly 14-year-old, it's just not going to happen with her. Like, I have her as the third child to be with me for the rest of my life. So she doesn't get that option. So, you know, she's she's my soft space to fall. You know, she's yes. going to be looking after me in my dotage and she's not quite on board with that yet, but I've got some time to work on her. And if you always have a full pantry at home, your kids are always going to come home because that's where they stock up on all the food, <laughs> everything they've been missing out on and couldn't afford to buy. They'll be like, mum's got it in the pantry. I'm going home. <laughs> Well, well, my son, my son is actually gluten intolerant, and he likes a particular kind of bagel that is a gluten free <laughs> bagel that costs about a hundred dollars per bagel. Yeah. So I've said to him, you know, I will continue to buy his bagels. He has to come home and actually pick them up from me. You know, it's so. interesting, um, Kerry, that uh, even before when I started thinking about broad radio, a lot of the impetus for me was around the fact that women um, get to sort of you know 40s and 50s and 60s and as our kids move out we start to struggle who to understand who we are as we become the empty nesters and you know you look around you're like oh they don't need me anymore is there any of that for you? I think it's a real process of understanding what it means to parent an adult child as opposed to parenting a young child and Someone actually said to me the other day, and it was genuinely like a a revelation for me, that you actually stop parenting actively adult children. And um, what I mean by that is with my 14-year-old, I'm constantly checking in. I'm constantly asking questions. I'm constantly um, trying to find areas where I can maybe help her to, to manage certain things better. With my adult children, what I'm trying to do now is to is to wait until they come to me. They don't need my unsolicited advice. They don't need my kind of proactive intervention. What I do is sit back and wait until they, you know, knock on my bedroom door or, or talk to me over dinner and say, hey, mum, you know, I've got this dilemma. What do you think about that? And I think it's it's quite a transition to make because as the parent, obviously, of a very young child, you have to be involved in every area of their life. As the parent of a teen you have to be constantly aware of what they're doing, of their social media use, of what's going on with their friendship circles. And so then you you actually have to start to switch off from that and to say, I've got them to this point and now it's up to them to start managing their, their world and their lives and come to me when they need me. So I think it's less about them making that move as it is about us pulling back a little bit so that they can grow and be independent and 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 self-actualize, I guess. I just feel like I'm picking both of your brains, like parenting advice and and having three kids. Do you find too that they're different personalities and, you know, as as they've grown up and you've started to really see who they are and do you find that you have very different relationships with all three of them? Can I tell you, as you are expecting your first child, this is what happens. When you have your first baby, you think, oh, of course, this is the logical product of me and my partner. Like, of course, this is how my child was going to turn out. And then you have a second child and you're like, oh, my God, like she's completely different. They're nothing alike. And and you see those personalities literally from birth. So my mm. son, you know, when he was born was very intense and, 
and um, very quiet and very thoughtful. And my second one was unbelievably chill from the moment she was born and really dreamy and constantly lost in her own head. And my third came out screaming and, (laughs) you know, basically was a performer from the time she was tiny. And so your relationship with them is completely different. And what I find is, you know, when you said, you know, you're getting parenting advice, I have raised a a particular personality, my, my son, he's now 22. I've raised his sister, who's a very different personality, who's now 20. But I'm starting all over again with this, you know, this teenager, this young teenager who has a completely different personality to her brother or sister, who needs completely different parenting, whose movement through life is, is taking a very different path. And so I feel like I'm starting from scratch again. And I think it is probably like that for people who have, you know, four, five, 17 mm. children. You are mm. constantly learning how to be in a relationship with this unique individual. So I don't have any answers. I'm just, no. I'm just no, stumbling I think, around like everybody is. I think what, you, what you're alluding to there, though, is one of my absolute philosophies around parenting is that it is our role as a parent to be told by the child what they need and want. It's not us to impose on them. And we, I think our generation, not all of us had these kinds of parents, but our generation, our parents were very much, this is how our family is, this is our values, this is our religion, this is our cultural background, whatever it might be, very oppressive at times. Whereas for me, it's the opposite. I want to learn from my child because she, you're right, they're born that way, aren't they, Kerry? They come out the way they are, right? They are, and I think that is so important. And I think particularly when you have a child who doesn't necessarily fit the mainstream mould, um, and my, my third is really neurotypical and, and the classic, classic team, but the other two are quite quirky in their own ways. And I think what it's about is letting go of any preconceptions that you have about what my son, my daughter is going to look like and just allow them to be who they are. And, you know, talking to my friends about their kids, a lot of, a lot of parents um, of young children and teens are quite confronted by um, how their, their kids are, are living and, and the choices that they're making because there's a whole different world now of, you know, gender nonconformity and, mm. and, um, and ways of expressing yourself that we just didn't really have when I was growing up. And so a lot of these parents are quite confronted. And I think our job is to sit back and, and watch and listen and, and, as you said, learn from our children and support them in becoming who they want to be and let go of any ideas about how we wanted them to turn out, whether we mm. wanted them to be, you know, straight or whether we wanted them to be you know sports people or whether we wanted them to to excel at school or turn out to be you know doctors or lawyers or whatever it is they have to form their own path and we have to accept them and the other thing is when you have more than one child you have to understand that they're never going to be like each other so one of my kids is incredibly socially adept one of them is quite shy and so you have to understand that this one is never going to be like the other one you can only make them or not even make them you can only help them I guess to be the best them that they can be Yes. And and that's easier for some people than others. I think a lot of parents do have kids and have a very specific idea of how they want that child to, to turn out. And it nearly always does not end up the way you think it's going no. to. No. And well, part of the problem is you kind of look for yourself in your child. So, Bianca, I know this is horrifying for you to learn, but your child might not be good at sport. <laughs> 
And that could be a real shock to you that your child might be terrible at netball and might not actually be so good with a ball. Oh, yes, I know. But I also there's probably parts of me that thinks, oh, that might be a good thing for the kid too, <laughs> not, not to have that pressure of playing any kind yeah. of sport. Hey, Carrie, I wanted to just say before we let you go, thank you so much for your article that you wrote yesterday or the day before about dick pics, unsolicited dick pics, oh. because of uh, what's been in the news with um, uh, the cricketer. Tim, Tim Payne. Yes. Tim Thank Payne. you for that yeah. uh, perspective on dick pics. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. It was it's it was actually really good to be able to be given that opportunity because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about why men send dick pics. And basically the gist of the article was they send them for two reasons. And one is because they think that we women are going to appreciate them because men love looking at pictures of boobs, disembodied boobs. You know, just a picture of a boob not attached to anyone is enough to make a lot of men really excited. And so they think that we're going to be just as excited to see a disembodied penis. And as I said in the article, that just ain't true. (laughs) We like the penises that are attached to the men that we are fond of. We don't like random penises. But the other thing is it's often a really, really aggressive act and it's a form of sexual assault. And I have many times being, you know, and I'm sure you have, being a person, a woman in the media, you open your inbox and some man has sent you a photo of his dick and, and it's an assault and it needs to stop. And um, as, I, as I said in the article, it's like they're toddlers just walking around flashing their, their penises and going, look, look at me. Mm. Um, and I hope, that, I hope that men read it and the men, you know, most men don't do it, but the men who do do it, I hope that they read it and, and feel embarrassed and, and stop. Mm. And teenagers too are doing it, which I think is extremely alarming. Like teenage boys, no, put it away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they, yeah. they need to understand that this is not okay and that it is a form of sexual assault mm. and, and I think it should be regarded as that. Look, there's nothing wrong with sexting when it's consensual. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you've got a partner or, or you're dating someone or thinking of dating someone and you ask to see their dick, great. Let them send you a photo in great light with, you know, filters and, <laughs> and emojis and whatever. That's Fantastic. It. Frame it. Frame it. Make a f- film, whatever you want. But it's when it's non-consensual, when, when it's unsolicited, when you literally just turn on your phone and bam. Mm. There's a penis on it yeah. and that that is not okay. It's never no. okay. No. Hey, Kerry Sackville, thanks so much for being a part of Board Radio this year. We've only got a couple more shows, so uh, we may not I see know. you again this year. I don't know. We'll see how we oh. go. But you'll be back next year well, on Board Radio. Oh, I will. I love you guys and I'm just so excited for 2022 where maybe at some point we can even be in the same studio together. Oh, how my God. I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> Determined to make that happen, Kerry. Oh. Love it. Yeah. Thanks, love. You have a great day. Broad Radio. Talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday, 9am, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2 a.m. existential crisis, <laughs> we've got you covered. Broad Radio, here for more. Oh, I've loved today's show. I know, it's been great and it's been great seeing all of your feedback as well. And if I just look, Stacey Williams has sent in, I dream to have my son in the position you have your son in, Kerry. As Joe said, kudos to you for having done a great job with your son and now he's ready to move into the world on his own. <laughs> and we also heard from Donna. Now, Donna said it's all very true, the conversation we were having, that 
at some stage you've got to stop parenting and become a friend and a mentor to your child. Are you, are you in that position, do you think? Uh, well, you know, I've always said that Willow and I are best friends and people go, oh, you're not supposed to be your child's friend, right? And <laughs> yeah. that is true. Like I'm not her friend as in, you know, let's go night clubbing together and I don't ever discipline her. Right? Yeah. I do, most definitely. Um, but she is genuinely my favourite person to hang out with, yeah. which maybe says a lot about my maturity. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but there comes a time when, yes, I suppose you stop having to as Kerry said, constantly checking in on them and being that mentor, even a silent mentor. So, mm. yeah, kids don't want to hear your advice. No, you know. of course not. <laughs> but no, I can just imagine you and Willow dancing around the kitchen. You've got your favourite tunes blaring. And oh, yes. That's what you want. You want to be able to hang out with your mum like that yeah. as a mate too. And, of course, then you have to abide by some rules Yes. Well. <laughs> Do you know what you're having? No, I don't. I don't know at all. I don't know how you could not know. How could you wait? I can't bear it. (laughs) I don't know. I think I like doing that to myself, like not knowing. Otherwise, I would probably go and buy so much more stuff. Well, that's possibly true. So, yeah, Yeah. I kind of think, oh, well, whatever it is, Mm. I will just figure it out when it comes along. And yeah. Yeah, well, and that is most definitely, for me, I think the key to parenting is total present moment awareness and just taking each day as it presents itself because otherwise you spend your life going, when is this going to end? I want the child to whatever the next stage you want to get to is. And you sort of miss the joys of that moment, you know. So anyway, I'm very wise and people will give you lots of advice. But that's that, you know, maybe just ignore Staying everything. the we moment say. seems good for all of us in every times in our it's lives, true. doesn't it, really? To that, be as present as we possibly can be. Absolutely. So um, I just before we wrap up today, I wanted to mention from Wednesday, 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence Begins. This is an annual international campaign that uh, comes out of the United Nations. Um, it starts on the 25th of November every year because it is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Runs for 10 days, finishes on the 10th of December, human, oh sorry, 16 days I should say because it's 16 days of activism. (laughs) Okay, Um, but it goes until the 10th of December which is Human Rights Day and it's just an amazing opportunity to really engage in any kind of conversation that you feel comfortable in having around eliminating violence against women and girls. Um, It's about talking about what you think respect looks like. It's about maybe sharing some posts on social media. There are some fantastic um, assets, as they call them, you know, social media tiles and images that you can use, both from the UN and Respect Victoria have some fantastic uh, things that you can share on your social media. There are also great, like, community events happening right around the country that you can be involved in during the 16 days. That's just about having the conversation, which is how do we, what is something I can do, just one little thing I can do to end violence against women and girls. It's amazing. And I think when we see something like this, sometimes it can be so overwhelming, can't it? Because you you go, am I going to delve into this? And it gets a bit scary and you don't know what you're going to find at the end of it. Mm. However, one thing that I really liked about this, if you click onto the website, one simple thing we can all do is just come up with our own statement, what respect means to us. So what respect means to you could be very different to what respect means to me, but simply just 
actually giving yourself five minutes to think about it. Mm. And then there, there in one way becomes your boundaries already about what you are okay with, what you're not okay with, what you want to put out there to the world. And that's where I think this is really a special uh, campaign that's going on. So hopefully, Mm. even if you do nothing else other than think about what respect means to you, I think that's going to be a powerful thing for all of us to do. Yes. And I should also mention that that there is a walk that's happening on Wednesday in Victoria um, that is all about uh, standing up and saying, you know, end to violence against women and girls so check that out in victoria and i'm pretty sure it's happening around the country as well so i encourage you to just google that the 16 days of activism is really critical and it's a worldwide campaign and um, we know that in other parts of the world particularly afghanistan at the moment there's some horrific things going on against the women there now that the taliban has taken over again Um, but right around the world and in our own country in our own city in our own suburb there are ways that we can step up and really just take a stand and say no it's it's enough it's just enough so we wanted to mention that and we're going to be uh embracing that uh, from the 25th of november hey bianca thanks so much for joining us on board radio oh, again thank you and i'm back next week yeah, i you can't are. wait how awesome yes. i love that it's so Two nice to see you in your glorious blue okay. um and let's hope i'm looking as glorious next week yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week on broad radio Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.